0: Well, we come to the second in our series that we're doing through the fall on ancient words in the Bible. And this week we're doing the word covenant. Um, I volunteered for covenant. I'm not sure why. <laughs> it was <laughs> it seemed like a good idea at the time. And I started to look into look into the subject. And I looked into it more, and I looked into it more, and I, this is really a, a series subject. This is not a sermon subject. Um, I reckon there's about eight sermons worth. Thank you. And today we have 25 minutes, so uh, we're really going to be looking only at a glimpse, as it were, of what this, mean, what this word means, because it is really at the heart of all of God's purposes in creation. So, would you pray with me? Father, as we come to this great subject this morning, we recognize uh, how impossible it is to grasp this in one sermon, but Lord, we ask that we might catch a glimpse of your eternal purposes, that we might be drawn closer to Jesus, and that, Lord, through this, by the working of your Holy Spirit, we might be made more like him. In his great name we pray, amen. So we're just going to try and look at three things this morning. Uh, we're going to want to think about the biblical meaning of the word covenant, as we, it is a word study. Uh, we're going to delve into God's use of covenants within the Bible, and then we're going to round that out thinking about the new covenant that God brings to us uh, by Jesus' blood. We want to think about the meaning of the word. That is actually the Hebrew word there, um, I'm told it's it's sort of pronounced birit or something like that, and uh, the the Bible, uh, the English translators always translate this word uh, with the word "covenant" in pretty much all the uh, English translations we have. But the, and everyone's in agreement that the word sort of basically means covenant. I mean, they know, we know what the word is about, but there is a lot of disagreement, it seems, about what the word, as it were, means from a literal point of view. What, what is, where does this word come from? Um, And so we have a number of definitions, a number of uh, suggestions as to the word. The most prominent of which is probably that it means fetter, to fetter or to bind, which really sort of captures the idea of a covenant or treaty. You know, you're binding yourselves together, some obligations, some benefits that you're agreeing to. The key thing is that it is a legal binding, a legal obligation you're entering into, and usually an everlasting or a long-lasting one uh there are suggestions that the word means sort of like a lot where you're going to divide things up you know like you would a lot you know property or land and you can imagine that in the division of the uh land of palestine for uh israel and sort of out on left field there's a suggestion that it actually means to eat because they usually you uh sort of you know you you made the covenant real by actually sitting down and eating together that was the seal of the covenant but underlying all that the root of the word seems to come from the word that means to cut or cutting and we'll come back to that as we said it's a binding covenant it's a binding agreement, but it can take two forms, and this is not just in the Bible but it is in all of ancient Middle East. Uh, it could be an agreement between two equal parties. You know you get together and you say, well i'll give you this this field if you give me this you know whatever it is the the the, uh, the, good, the goods from the field or the harvest from the field or whatever." Two people would get together, two nations might get together, and they agree what it is that they are covenanting to. But it also can be between two unequal parties. It could be a king and his subjects. It could be a victor and the vanquished. And there, there isn't really a mutuality involved. The king is going to say what he wants, and the people are going to have to deliver. It is a unilateral decree. Now, not surprisingly, maybe, when we think of God and his people, all of God's covenants are unilateral. God speaks and, if you like, we listen. But that is not to say that God is some tyrant. That is not what we will find as we look at his covenants. But let's, let's go on and think about those covenants. Surprisingly, maybe for us, the earliest covenant that we find in the Bible is not with Adam, but it's with Noah. Then God said to Noah, and this is a very praesate version of Genesis chapter 9, but God said to Noah, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between you and me. I have set my rainbow In the clouds. You might know this story from Sunday school the rainbow, the sign of God's covenant. That is God speaking. And here, He's obliging Himself. He is making an obligation to Himself. He says, I will not. I will never again destroy all with the waters of a flood. But not on this slide, uh, but earlier in the passage, God says this, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Now we see the nature, the basic nature of a covenant. God speaks, And he calls people to an obligation to end the violence that has been plaguing mankind since Cain killed Abel. And he places himself under an obligation that no matter how bad things get again, God will not end all of mankind. Noah also made a sacrifice in chapter 8, and this is really also part of the covenant, though it seems to happen before the covenant is made. And sacrifice nearly always is found in the covenant process. We'll think about that a little more later. And then finally, the rainbow, the sign of the covenant. This is a very common feature as well. In fact, almost all of God's covenants involve a sign, something physical that is there to remind us of the covenant so we won't forget. But I want to move to Abraham because Abraham is really where I want to spend most of the time this morning in thinking about God's covenants. This is the first time we find God speaking to Abraham. It's before he is Abraham. As we've read in our passage this morning, God changed his name from Abram. And God said to Abram, "'Go from your country, your people, "'and your father's household to the land I will show you. "'I will make you into a great nation. "'I will bless you. "'I will make your name great, "'and you will be a blessing.'" I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. All peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, this is not the covenant that God makes with Abraham, but it is a threefold promise that starts the story for us. Abraham is called by God to leave his people, to go to the promised land. And God promises him a great name, a great nation, and to be a blessing to all people. And Abraham responds. Abraham leaves his father's house, and he goes to the promised land. But he takes his nephew Lot with him, And they journey around the promised land together until eventually they become so wealthy, they become so endowed with flocks and herds that they really can't stick together anymore. And finally, they separate. And when they separate, God appears to Abraham again. And he confirms, this is the promised land. Look, any direction you like, all of this is going to be yours. Well, a little while later, Lot, he gets caught up in a little local war that takes place between five kings, or five warlords of the time. And he gets captured along with all of his uh, family. And Abraham hears about this and he gathers an, a, a force together and he goes off and he defeats these local kings, and he saves uh, Lot. And he rescues him, and he brings him back. And when he comes back, on the way back, he meets Melchizedek. Melchizedek is this strange character we know very little about. But we know two things. He is the king of Salem, which is later to become Jerusalem, and he is also priest, of God most High. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives Melchizedek a tithe of all the plunder that he's gained from the kings. Well, and then Abraham also, he meets the king of Sodom. And that doesn't go so well. The king is very happy that his people and his plunder has been rescued. But Abram is not happy to deal with him. Well, why am I telling you all this? Well, we read in chapter 15 of Genesis that after this, that is, after all I've just been describing to you, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant of my household will be my heir. Many years ago, God said to Abraham, leave your people, go to the place I'll show you, and I will make your name great. I will make you into a great nation, and all peoples of earth will be blessed. And now, years later, God speaks to Abraham again, but Abraham is not a happy bunny He's been wandering around for years in this so-called promised land, and he owns none of it. And worse yet, he is now well over the hill age-wise, and his wife is way past childbearing. And God comes back and he says, look, don't worry. Don't be afraid. I'm your great reward. And Abraham goes, what is going on? What is going on? I have no children. None of this is coming to fruition. I just had to go and fight battles with the local kings just to keep my nephew out of trouble. Abraham is not feeling great. He's not seeing a great nation. He's not even feeling a blessing to these local people, let alone all peoples. But the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, this man will not be your heir but a son of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, look up to the sky, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And then we have this verse, which we know very well. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him. As righteousness, Abraham, despite everything, trusts God, that indeed God is good for His promise, and that faith makes him right with God, and this forms a big part of Paul's uh, Paul's explanation of the gospel to us in Romans. Okay, well, what's this got to do with covenants? Well, God also said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? These are the verses that immediately follow what we're just talking about. Abraham believes God, and it is credited to him as righteousness. And the very next line, he's going, well, how can I know that this second part of your promise is going to happen? And then we get this really strange thing. God doesn't answer His question. Instead, he says, The Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in half, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. What? Like, what? Well, we have to go back to that root meaning of the word covenant, to cut. In the Middle East, in the ancient Middle East, when a covenant was being made, very often it would involve an animal sacrifice, But the animal wasn't simply killed and then they ate it. It would be literally cut in half. And then the participants of the covenant would actually walk between the two halves, declaring the obligations of the covenant. And this was symbolic. It was saying, I am making this solemn vow. And if I don't keep my vow, may I be like this animal cut in half? May I be, this? may this happen to me as this happened to this animal? Like, they hadn't got lawyers in those days, so you had to do it somehow, right? So Abraham, when God says to him, bring these animals, Abraham goes, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, what have I done? Like okay now he's going to tell me what i've got to do like now the obligation is coming that i'm going that's going to happen to me right i'm going to be asked to do something and so forth well we'll have to skip on in the story it is there's a lot more in there but what we find in and after several hours of Abraham sitting, waiting for something to happen, the sun goes down, he falls asleep, he wakes up. Lots of stuff has happened, but it is now dark. And when he wakes up, he sees a smoking firepot with a blazing torch passing between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. And what is extraordinary about this is it's not Abraham that passes between the animals. It is not Abraham who is having to swear to God to deal with the obligations that the sovereign is placing upon his subject. Instead, It is God who passes between the pieces and is basically saying, I am giving you this land, and if I do not give you this land, may it be, may I be like these cut-up animals. It is God who commits to Abraham. This is not the end of the story. It is practically the end of our time. Fifteen years go by, and there is still no offspring. Well, there's Ishmael at this point, but uh, you know, that wasn't really the intention. Fifteen years later, God appears to Abraham again, and he says, um, as in our readings, right, uh, that we had earlier on. He declares another covenant or a continuation of the covenant from chapter 15. And he says, you are going to be the father of many nations. He says, your name will be great. Kings will come from you. He says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. a reiteration of the covenant that we saw in chapter 15, reinforcing that indeed it will be offspring of Sarah who will fulfill the promise of the covenant. But now God introduces an obligation on Abraham as we read in our passage. He says, all your males must be circumcised. And I've always thought this one's a strange one as well. But again, we need to go back to the root of covenant to cut. Now, all of the descendants of Abraham will carry in their body the physical sign of the covenant that God has made to Abraham. And if you notice in verse 7, this call that God is to be their God, this concept that I will be their God and they will be my people, this goes to the heart of God's covenants with his people. Time and time again we find it in Scripture. It is to be the outcome of all of God's dealings with mankind. Okay, (laughs) no, still get it wrong. All right, we come to the covenant that probably most of you know, so we're not going to spend any time on it, the covenant that God makes with Israel through Moses. All we will uh, touch on here is really just to remind ourselves, God says in many places throughout Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, about the covenant that he's making with these people, but here is what he declares in Exodus 34. Then the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Moses was there, he's up on the mountain with God. He was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote down on the tablets the words of the covenant the Ten Commandments. Now God's covenant with Israel wasn't restricted to the Ten Commandments, but they are really a summary of what God called Israel to do, the obligation he placed on them that he would give them, so that he would give them the promised land and be their God. And the sign of the covenant, we've talked about signs, For the Israelites, the sign of the covenant is to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. We've seen three covenants and three signs. Noah's sign of the rainbow. Abraham's sign of circumcision, and with Moses, the sign of the Sabbath. The last, well, actually not quite last, the fourth, I'm going backwards again. I don't know, something with me. Okay, with David, we're going to be even quicker. The fourth covenant is with King David. Uh, if you remember the story David is established on his throne. He looks and he's built his lovely palace and he says, oh, it's wrong that I haven't built a a temple for God. This is what I'm going to do. Nathan, the prophet, says to him, that's great. Go ahead, do it. Magnificent. And God says, no. And God speaks to David and he says, far be it from you to build me a house. Instead, I will build a house for you. David wanted to build a house for God, his temple. God says, no, I will build a house for you, meaning his dynasty. He says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. It's recorded in 2 Samuel. It doesn't actually mention covenant, but there are many other places which confirms that Sorry, it's not even on the... I haven't even got a slide for it. Um, One second. Spoiled the punchline. Okay, so... uh, Yes, in Psalm 89, for example, it says, you said, I have made a covenant, speaking of God, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. So, we have four covenants made by God one with Noah, one with Abraham, or two with Abraham, depending on which way you look at it, one with Moses, and one with David. Each covenant is building a more explicit relationship between God and his chosen people. And so, they all live happily ever after, right? That's the point of these covenants, I will be their God and they will be my people. It's really sad that the, there's transitions on all these slides and none of them work. So there was supposed to pop, not so much is supposed to pop up in a moment, but there we go. I learned something. So it's all good. Well, not really, of course. We know the story. Israel and her kings don't live up to the covenants. Things go from bad to worse, and we know that in the end, Israel goes into captivity and exile in Babylon, only to be brought back years later. But God is not done. The prophets start to speak about something new. We have two samples here, very briefly. In Jeremiah, which is the main passage, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, after the exile. God promises there will be a new covenant. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. It is a covenant, but it is different. It's going to be in the mind and the heart, not in the action and the physical. And Isaiah says this, or the God says this through Isaiah. In chapter 42, he says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. Who is the I? It's the servant of the Lord he's speaking about. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Remember the promise to Abraham that he would be a blessing? The new covenant will finally meet that, uh, deliver that promise. This servant of the Lord will be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. So we have a new covenant and, of course, We see that fulfilled in uh, the new covenant being fulfilled in Jesus. And we really have to be extremely brief now. So I just want to talk. Okay, yeah. Just three short points. So firstly, Jesus is the fulfillment of those covenants we've been thinking about. He fulfills David, for he is of the line of David, and he reigns at God's right hand forever. That covenant to David to establish his throne forever is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus also fulfills Moses. I told you this is going to be quick. (laughs) He is the perfect priest, offering the perfect sacrifice, meeting all the obligations of the law And he sets aside the letter of the law so that we might live by the Holy Spirit. The new covenant is in our hearts, not in the written word. And he fulfills Abraham. For the follower of Jesus, we're told, is the spiritual descendant of Abraham. And we receive a circumcision not in the flesh, but of the heart. And we are to be the blessing of the nations, to the nations. And finally, Jesus also fulfills Noah. And we really can't go into this very much, but Noah is really a prefiguring of Christ. He effectively saves humanity humanity, because of his righteousness, his faithfulness, and his obedience to God. And it is only through Christ that salvation is found. All right. Nearly there. This new covenant is truly a covenant of grace. All these covenants of God have been covenants of grace, where God binds himself to his people. But this surpasses them all. It is between God and all who respond to the gospel God gives salvation to all who are willing to receive, not for anything they've done, but through the blood of his Son. He gives his Holy Spirit to sanctify and enable us to live by faith. And he seals the covenant with the blood of his own Son. We've spoken about covenants and their signs the new covenant also has a sign for we live in the now and the not yet and so Jesus took the cup and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, and we would have had a lovely illustration. We're going to enjoy a different communion uh, in a moment over lunch. But whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Our sign of the new covenant is the communion around which we gather To remember Christ's death, to remember his reign, and to remember what is coming. For the new covenant is only fulfilled and completed in the new Jerusalem. And this is from John's revelation. Well, the revelation of Jesus Christ through John. Give it its proper name. And as John sees the new Jerusalem descending from heaven to the new earth, he hears a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And so God at the end of all things, finally fulfills his purpose in all these covenants, that he will be our God and we will be his people and we will dwell together forever.